If you would turn with me in the Bible to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, so we have been going through the book of Exodus, which tells the story of how God brought the people of Israel out of bondage and slavery in the land of Egypt, and then how he taught them what it means to belong to him. So we've called this from bondage to belonging. And in the middle of Exodus is one of the more well-known parts of the book, the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments come in the middle of this story after God has set the people free from living under an oppressive regime under Pharaoh in Egypt uh, when they were enslaved and oppressed. And God has brought them out and he's teaching them how to live as people who are free and as people who belong to him. And so we're looking at each of the Ten Commandments uh, one by one and digging into them uh, to understand uh, what they mean and uh, looking at them in light of the story of the Bible. So this morning we're looking at the ninth commandment, which is chapter 20 and verse 16. Uh, it's a short one, but here's what it says. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. One of my earliest memories from when I was about five years old is of a time when I told a lie. It was a beautiful summer day. My aunt had taken me and my cousin raspberry picking. We picked a few cartons of raspberries. We put them in the back of the car, just behind the back seat where my cousin and I were sitting. My aunt told us, don't eat any raspberries before you get home. I don't remember her reasons. Maybe she wanted to wash them first. Maybe she didn't want us to stain our clothes or the seats of her car. But the raspberries were juicy and sweet and delicious, and I could reach them from where I was seated, so I helped myself to several on the way home. When we got back, my aunt noticed that there were not as many raspberries as there had been, and so she asked me, Gregory, did you eat these raspberries that I told you not to eat? And I said, no, I didn't eat those. My aunt wasn't fooled. I don't know what exactly gave me away. Maybe it was the red stains around my mouth or the seeds in my teeth or a guilty look on my face. Regardless, my aunt knew very well that I had just lied to her face. She was mad. And looking back, she was right to be concerned and to tell my mom what had happened. She wasn't mostly concerned about the raspberries or about any mess that I had made. She wasn't even mainly concerned that I had disobeyed her initial command. She was, her main concern was that I had looked her in the face and told a bald-faced lie. And my aunt knew, rightly, that healthy relationships are based on truth and honesty, and lies and deception result in broken trust. She didn't want me to grow up and feel like it was okay to lie to other people. Now, if you open the Bible and start reading it from the beginning, you don't have to get very far until you find a story about lying and deceiving. Genesis chapter 2, it says, God put Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden. He said to them, go ahead, have at it. It's all yours. Eat from any tree you want in the whole garden. There's only one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that belongs to me alone. So don't eat from that one tree, otherwise you'll die. And in chapter 3, the next chapter, the devil suddenly appears in the form of a serpent, and he says to Eve, did God really say 
You can't eat from any tree in the garden. Notice, he doesn't start off with an outright lie. He starts off with a misleading question. He frames this question in a way that makes God seem stingy, selfish, and cruel. It's as if he says to Eve, wait a minute. God made this whole garden, and he won't let you eat anything from it? Nearly the opposite was true. God had said, eat from any tree you want. There's only just one tree among all the trees of the huge garden. There's only one that belongs to God alone. Eve's initial response was to correct the serpent, but she corrected him hesitantly and not confidently. We, we may eat fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it. God didn't say anything about touching it, lest you die. And then the serpent told her an outright lie. You will not surely die, he said directly contradicting what God had previously said, but then he continued with some partial truths. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Doesn't that sound good? Wouldn't you like that? Eve thought so, so she took a bite. And lest you blame Eve for all the problems of the world, verse 6 says she also gave some to her husband who was with her. He was there the whole time. And he ate too. Adam was complicit in the whole thing. And immediately after they ate the forbidden fruit, the first thing Adam and Eve tried to do was to hide the truth. They tried to cover up what they had done. When God confronted and questioned them, each of them pointed the finger at someone else. Adam said, Eve made me do it. Eve said, the serpent made me do it. In this story alone, we see all kinds of untruth. Twisting someone else's words, spin and deception, outright lies, hiding, avoiding, blaming. And if you read on in the Bible, there are many other stories where human beings lie and deceive and misrepresent the truth. The virus that the serpent introduced has spread to the whole human race. It's been passed down through the generations and it lives inside every one of us. That day when I was five years old, there was nothing outside of myself that made me lie or induced me to lie. No one had taught me that it was okay to lie. I don't ever remember seeing someone else lie and thinking, that's cool, I want to copy them. I would never have said, I want to grow up and be a liar. So why did I lie that day? Like Adam and Eve, I was ashamed of what I had done I wanted to cover it up. I didn't want to face any consequences for what I had done. Lying is one expression of what the Bible calls our sinful nature. The inclination that we are all born with to turn away from God and from what is true and right and good. Today we're looking at the ninth commandment, which is about truth. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, as we've done with each of the commandments, we're going to look at this commandment under four headings uh, that reflect sort of the story of the Bible. First, we're going to look at how is this commandment a manual that shows us God's good design. God made the world. He made it good. And, this, and his commandments reflect his goodwill and good desire for us. So how is this a good rule? 
Uh, how is this a manual that shows us God's good design? Second, we'll look at how is this a mirror that shows us our sin. In other words, how we fall short of God's good design. How the world doesn't work properly today. Third, we'll see how is this a window that shows us Jesus, our Savior, who came to rescue us from our sin. That's the good news. And fourth, we'll look at how it's a guide that shows us God's path. So first, how is this commandment a manual that shows us God's good design? Well, one thing we might notice is that this commandment lays a necessary foundation for a healthy and just legal system. Literally, the commandment could be translated, you shall not answer or testify against your neighbor a false witness. In the ancient world, there was no such thing as DNA evidence, video recordings, audio recordings, photographs, or fingerprints. So when a crime had been committed and when a judgment had to be made, or when two parties had a civil dispute that couldn't be resolved out of court, uh, the judges had to rely primarily upon the testimony of witnesses. And therefore, the health and justice of any legal system in the ancient world depended largely upon the moral character of witnesses. Right? No matter how good and wise the laws of the land might be, no matter how impartial the judges might be, justice would not be upheld if witnesses routinely lied and deceived and manipulated. And so for this reason, the Old Testament laid out three principles to reinforce how important this was, to have true and reliable testimony in court. Uh, so first principle we find in the Old Testament is that false witnesses were liable to receive the same penalty as the falsely accused person would have received uh, for whatever crime he or she was falsely accused of. Uh, so this, the reference for this is Deuteronomy 19, uh, 16 through 21. In other words, lying in court was taken very seriously, and if someone was convicted of perjury or lying in court, they would not get away easily. They would have the same punishment that they were trying to get somebody else to have. Uh, second principle is no one could be convicted of any crime based on only one person's testimony. Uh, two or three witnesses were necessary in order to establish any kind of guilty verdict. The reference for this is Deuteronomy 19.15. In other words, the Bible supports the idea of innocent until proven guilty under the law. Uh, third, the judge had to hear both sides before arriving at a final verdict. Proverbs 18.17 says, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. The principle in Proverbs is that uh, it warns us, don't make a final judgment until you've given both sides a fair hearing. Now, all of the above are good and healthy legal principles uh, that guard against false testimony. But the Ninth Commandment isn't just prohibiting false witness in a legal context. Uh, as we've seen over the last few weeks, um, for example, Commandment 6 isn't just prohibiting murder. It also, by extension, prohibits all kinds of malice. Commandment 7 doesn't just permit, uh, prohibit adultery. It also, by extension, prohibits all kinds of betrayal and unfaithfulness. Commandment 8, what we looked at last week, doesn't just prohibit theft. Don't steal. It also warns us against hoarding and failing to be generous to those who are really in need. And Commandment 9 doesn't just prohibit perjury in court, it prohibits all forms of lying and deception that cause harm to our neighbors, our fellow human beings, and that dishonor God. Now, of course, some people ask, 
but are there any circumstances in which it would be okay to lie or deceive? What about the example that always comes out? What about people in Nazi Germany who are hiding Jewish people in their houses, right? Are, is, does this commandment say you have to tell the truth if the Nazis knock on your door? Well, what does the Bible say about this? Well, there are two stories in the Bible where somebody lies and the Bible clearly portrays their action in a positive light. So one example is found in the beginning of this book of Exodus. Pharaoh wanted to kill Hebrew baby boys and he instructed the midwives, the Egyptian midwives, to carry out his command when they were delivering a baby. If it was a girl, fine, and if it was a boy, kill it. And we, they refused, they didn't want to do that. They, had a, they did the right thing, they did not follow his command, and so he summoned them and he says, why haven't you followed through? And they said to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women. They give birth before we even get there. In other words, they gave an intentionally misleading and deceptive answer to a cruel and murderous tyrant. And the next sentence says, God dealt well with the midwives. Why did God deal well with them? Because they were defending innocent children from a murderous tyrant. The next example is Joshua chapter two. Rahab the Canaanite was hiding two Israelite spies in her house. The men of Jericho come knocking at her door. They want to arrest those guys, probably kill them. And, and they say to Rahab, where, where are they? Do you have them? And Rahab said, they went that away. <laughs> it was a lie, but it saved their lives. And Hebrews 11 says Rahab was commended for her faith and her hospitality. So in both of these instances, People's lives were at risk from a sworn enemy. That's when it might be okay to lie and deceive. If someone is in a murderous rage and someone else's life is in imminent danger, the priority should be preserving human life. But here's the thing, 99.9% .9 of the time, we are in no such situation, right? That is an exception, but it's a very narrow exception. And there's a relatively small number of situations in human life that fit under that exception. There are a very small number of stories in the Bible where someone lies for a good reason. There are a very large number of stories in the Bible where someone lies and deceives for a bad reason. Jacob lied and deceived because he wanted to get ahead of his older brother Esau. His uncle Laban then lied and deceived because he saw Jacob's success and he was envious of Jacob. Later on, 10 of Jacob's sons lied to their dad because they didn't want to fess up to what they had done to their younger brother who they envied and, and sold into slavery. Talk about a dysfunctional family. And those stories are only found in the first book of the Bible. I could give many other examples of lies and deception for all kinds of bad reasons in many other parts of the Bible. Now we might ask, why is lying such a big deal? On a human level, I think we can all recognize healthy relationships are sustained by truth and torn apart by lies. Do you want to be lied to, manipulated, or deceived later today? I assume the answer is no. And so if we simply apply the golden rule, do to others as you would have them do to you, the conclusion is obvious. Tell the truth and don't lie, deceive, or manipulate, just as you want others to do the same to you. But the Bible always reminds us there's not just the horizontal dimension to life, which I think is fairly easy for us all to recognize. Uh, 
Life is not just about how do our actions dishonor or honor other people, but there's also a vertical dimension to life. How do our actions honor or dishonor God? And throughout the Bible, God identifies himself closely with the truth. So here are a few verses. Titus chapter 1, verse 2 says, God, who never lies, promised eternal life before the ages began. We can rely on God's promises because God never lies. Hebrews 6, 18, it is impossible for God to lie. Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace purified seven times. That is completely pure. Because God himself is truth, God hates lying and falsehood because they're absolutely opposed to his character. So there are many verses I could quote along these lines. Here's just a few. Proverbs 6:19 says, The Lord hates a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers and sisters. Proverbs 19, verse 5 says, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. Isaiah 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. God takes lying and deception very seriously because God himself is a God of truth. That's why this commandment is a good thing. It's a manual that shows us God's good design for our lives. God is a God of truth. Life works well uh, when we have open and honest and truthful relationships. But second, this command is also a mirror that shows us our sin. Now, if you've never committed perjury in court, that's a good thing. Don't do it. But there are many other ways that we can violate this commandment. In relationship to God, we can twist God's words. The first thing that the devil did when he was talking to Eve in the garden. And in the process, bear false witness about God. You know, in the history of the church, most false teachings have started with a grain of truth. So if you talk to, say, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, they can all quote a few verses in the Bible that support their particular doctrines. They all say they want to go back to original New Testament Christianity. But the problem is when people take a few verses in the Bible out of context and ignore many other verses in the Bible that establish corresponding or balancing truths. So that's why over time it's important and healthy not just to get to know a few snippets from the Bible, sort of sound bites that we can quote here and there, uh, verses of the day, right? Verses of the day is fine. If you use a Bible app, that's fine. But we also want to get to know the whole Bible so we can see the whole character of God. So that's why one of the things we do here is when I go through a book, I go through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And normally I don't skip parts uh, because we want to see what the whole Bible says, not just sort of cherry pick our favorite parts. We don't want to twist God's words in order to support our own preconceived notions. We want to let God's words sort of reshape and reframe our own ideas. Uh, but what about in relationship to ourselves? We can bear false witness about ourselves by hiding and avoiding when we've done something wrong or blaming other people and circumstances instead of taking responsibility for our actions or misrepresenting situations in order to make ourselves look better and others look worse. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. And people have been doing the same thing ever since. 
One preacher, Phil Riken, wrote this, if there is one thing God hates, it is the lies that Christians tell to make themselves look more righteous than they really are. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 27, woe to you hypocrites. You also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, which we read earlier, says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In other words, if we can't admit that something is a problem, we will never be able to get the help that we need for it. But there's good news in the next verse, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us, because Jesus is our advocate before the Father, and he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And that is good news. When we admit what we've done wrong, when we confess our sins, when we, we're agreeing with God's verdict, and, God, and when we do that, God promises not only to forgive us, but also to cleanse us. But what about in relationship to others? Right? We can bear false witness about God. That's a serious thing. We can bear false witness about ourselves. But uh, the focus of this commandment is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. How might we bear false witness about others? Well, one way we might do this is by jumping to conclusions without first examining the facts. That's what Jesus warns against when he said, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you, Matthew 7, 1 and 2. Now that verse does not mean that we should never come to any definite moral conclusions. That verse does not mean that we should never make a strong statement after carefully evaluating a situation. Jesus made plenty of clear and strong statements saying this is right and this is wrong. So don't judge doesn't mean never say anything's right or wrong. What it does mean is don't rush to judgment. Don't confidently publish your verdict on a situation if there are significant facts that you don't know and haven't bothered to look into. Or how about slander and gossip? That would fall under this commandment. Slander is spreading a false report about someone else. Gossip is saying things about someone else that may or may not be true, but they are not necessary or helpful. And both are violations of this command. Ephesians 4.25 says, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. But then verse 29 goes on. It says we shouldn't just say anything and everything that we think is true. It says this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You see, we can say a lot of things that might be technically or factually true but in the context, they are neither helpful nor appropriate. And they don't build up our neighbor or help them. Back in the 16th century, uh, John Calvin wrote this. We delight in a certain poisoned sweetness experienced in ferreting out and disclosing the evils of others. Isn't that why some posts on social media go viral? There's a certain poison sweetness in exposing someone else's evil. 
Proverbs 18, verse 8 says, The words of a whisperer or a gossip are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Can you believe what he just said? Look at how awful she is. At least I'm not as bad as those people. Some people make friends by getting together and talking about other people and other people's sins. The Bible says don't do that. In fact, Proverbs 16, 28 says a whisperer separates close friends. That's the end effect of gossip. Calvin goes on to say this, let us not think that it is an adequate excuse if in many instances we are not lying. For he who does not allow a brother or sister's name to be sullied by falsehood also wishes it to be kept unblemished as far as truth permits. In other words, you might know someone else's dirty laundry. You might know their past, things that maybe they're ashamed of from their past. You might know their flaws. You might know their present temptations to sin and struggles with sin. But that doesn't mean you should air out their dirty laundry so that everyone else in the world knows it too. Now, there are times when you may see or know something that seems wrong and you should not be silent about it. So sometimes these biblical warnings against gossip are wrongly used to silence people who are expressing legitimate and serious concerns. And that is wrong. The Bible doesn't say, never question anyone else. Especially, don't ever question a pastor or church leader. The Bible doesn't say that. And so it's not a healthy church culture if anyone who raises a serious, a legitimate concern or question with the church leadership immediately gets shut down and shut out. In fact, the Bible encourages us, if we do have a serious question or a concern with someone else, the ideal way to address that is to go to that person directly and express that concern or ask that question. And then be willing to hear them out in response. Because sometimes we don't always see the whole story. Sometimes something seems way off, and then if we know more of the context, we can understand what we wouldn't have known on our own. If that's not possible, sometimes it's not always possible or wise to approach someone directly, individually, then the next best option is go to someone who is in a position of authority. In other words, who is responsible to care for that person. Go to a spiritual leader, uh, a pastor or a leader in the church, and ask for their help and advice. So here's an example of how someone might do that. Someone you might say, I think this person needs help. I want to help them in any way I can, but I really don't know how best to help them. And I'm coming to you for advice. That's a legitimate and helpful question to ask because the goal is to help a neighbor who is struggling. Now here's another way to approach it. I just want you to know about this and don't tell anyone else that I told you and please don't do anything about it. That's gossip because it doesn't help anyone. So this is, these are some ways that this command is a mirror that shows us our sin, that shows us how we can fall short of this command. But third, this command gives us, points to the good news, it's a window that shows us Jesus, our Savior. 
If you read the gospel accounts throughout Jesus' life, Jesus fulfilled and embodied this command. John 1.14 says Jesus was full of grace and truth. Isaiah 53.9 says there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus never twisted God's words. Jesus never gossiped. Jesus never flattered. Jesus never slandered. Jesus never spoke out of insecurity and impulsiveness. Jesus never remained silent out of fear of other people's reactions. His words were true, his words were good, and his words were deliberate. In John, 13, in John 18, 37 and 38, Jesus said to Pilate, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus fulfilled and embodied this command. He was truthful and gracious in all that he spoke and did. And yet, though Jesus fulfilled and obeyed this command, he became a victim of those who, fl who flagrantly disobeyed it. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter, the leader of his disciples, denied even knowing him on three separate occasions. And when Jesus was brought before the ruling council, Mark 14, 56 says, many bore false witness against him. And on the basis of false accusations, Jesus was sentenced to death. Jesus knows what it's like to be slandered, gossiped about, falsely accused, and unfairly blamed. And the Bible says that Jesus came to be our advocate. He became to be our advocate for those of us who have sinned and fallen short of this command and for those of us who have been sinned against by others who have violated this command. If you have been the victim of false witness in a legal context or in society more broadly, if you have been slandered, if people have gossiped about you, and falsely accused you or unfairly blamed you, Jesus understands what you have been through. And Jesus sympathizes with you, and he invites you to draw near to him and experience communion and fellowship with him in your sufferings and to trust his promise that one day when he returns, nothing will be hidden anymore, and the truth will come to light. All misconceptions and falsehoods will finally pass away like the morning dawn drives away the darkness of night, and everything will be revealed for what it really is. But Jesus can also be our advocate if we have lived in the darkness, if we have lived in the shadows, if we are trying to hide and avoid and blame, if we have falsely accused, gossiped about others, slandered them. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says this, If anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, Jesus bore the punishment that we deserved when he died on the cross. And he calls out to us, like God called out to Adam and Eve in the garden when they were hiding from him. He said, where are you? Jesus calls us to come out of our hiding and avoiding and blaming and come into the light of his presence and his truth and to confess our sins, to receive his forgiveness. Have you ever been in a situation where you couldn't shower or bathe for weeks on end? Maybe you had a cast on, maybe you were recovering from surgery, maybe you were on a wilderness hiking trip, maybe the place where you were living had no hot water, whatever it is, coming to Jesus and confessing our sins is like coming back home and taking a long hot shower after not having bathed for many days or weeks. 
Jesus said in John 8, verse 32, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you come to Jesus honestly and truthfully, he will set you free from the lies you have believed and spoken. That's the good news. Finally, this command is a guide that shows us God's path. I've already given a number of specific examples throughout the sermon, so I'm going to end here very briefly, and then we'll take communion. But in our relationship to the world, how can we be a people who are truthful, open, and authentic? That's what the Apostle Paul encouraged us to be in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. Paul wrote, we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we live in a world where falsehoods of all kinds seem to be increasingly prevalent. Spin, deception, gossip, hypocrisy, double standards, part of our Christian witness to the world is being people who value the truth, who honor the truth, who live by the truth, and who are trustworthy as God himself is. And these same qualities are what will help us grow together into an increasingly healthy and spiritually mature church. Here's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse, 6, verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way, in every way, into him who is the head, into Christ. That's how we grow to be a strong and healthy church, by speaking the truth in love to one another and even to ourselves, reminding ourselves of the truth and of, of the love of Christ. So let's pray. Almighty God, you are truth, you are light. We thank you for sending your son Jesus, who faithfully bore witness to the truth. And we thank you that he died on the cross so that we who have fallen short of this command might know your forgiveness and your cleansing power. We pray that you would help us to be a people who love your truth and who increasingly live by it day by day in our relationship with you, in our words and thoughts and actions relating to ourselves, and in our words and thoughts and actions about others, toward others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.